Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs, and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the Southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agilerabbit.com. Here is Dr. Mark Freestone, the leading expert who helped to create Killing Eve's Villanelle. Okay, so after I did my PhD, I was given a grant by what is now the National Institute for Health Research to investigate high secure mental health units in the UK and EU. And this was just at the time something called the Dangerous and Severe Personality Disorder Program was starting up. And the Dangerous and Severe Personality Disorder Program was a brand new set of services across high secure hospitals, uh, prisons and uh, medium secure units in the UK to try and find a way to work with men and women with a diagnosis of severe personality disorder who posed a risk to other people. So it was a very, very exciting initiative because nothing like this had been tried before. Uh, with the exception of the Penetanguishene Hospital in Canada, I don't know if any of you have heard of this. This is a sort of slightly infamous treatment where a very, very bold set of psychiatrists and psychologists set up a treatment specifically for psychopaths that involved all kinds of weird, wonderful things like LSD psychotherapy. So you'd take a tab of acid, sit in a room with a bunch of other psychopaths. Um, alternatively, you might have naked encounter therapy where everyone took their clothes off and stripped of the, the shields and defences of everyday life. People could talk formally about what it was like to be a psychopath. Um, did it work? Any guesses? No, it didn't, didn't have, it made everybody worse. So that's great precedent for uh, the Dangerous and Severe Personality Disorder program. So I, I worked on this as an anthropologist actually, hence my social science background for a couple of years. And then one of the prison services offered me a job. And I didn't have a job because I was just a postdoctoral researcher, which is a tough gig. And I took it. And then I was sort of stuck in forensic mental health. And since then I've worked in maximum security prison, um, two high-secure hospitals, a medium-secure service, which I still can consult to in Hackney. And over that time, all of this work has been with men with a severe personality disorder, usually including several features, if not the full gamut of psychopathic features. So I want to talk today about how we, what a psychopath is, what, what it means to be a psychopath, how it's possible to identify a psychopath, where psychopathy comes from whether it's a genetic disorder or an environmental disorder, or a mix of the two. And finally, I'll talk a bit about Villanelle from, from Killing Eve, who I was called in by the Sid Gentle team to consult on in 2016, actually. It was a long time ago. And I thought, oh my God, this television series is going to be absolutely dreadful. Why would I want to get involved with this? And my wife was like, you need the money. And I was like, okay, I'll take the money. Hi, yeah, sure, you know, great. Look, it sounds really, really cool. Whatever. I'll come back to that. Okay, so what is a psychopath? So I might start here by, by talking about what I thought a psychopath was before I started my postdoctoral work in 2004. And I thought of Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Coincidentally, I rewatched Science of the Lambs on Saturday night with my wife. And I was struck by what a brilliant character Dr. Hannibal Lecter is, how sort of compelling he is to watch, but how he's absolutely unlike any psychopath I've ever met or ever even heard of. Most movie villains or most movie psychopaths, they're just not plausible representations of what a psychopath is like. In a funny way, some movie heroes such as James Bond have far more true-to-life psychopathic features, lack of remorse, glib and superficial charm, conning and manipulative, than most of the psychopaths we see presented as villains. 
Apart from anything else, psychopaths are definitely not more intelligent than anyone else. The average IQ of a psychopath in a prison or a forensic mental health setting is about 92. So there are a good eight intelligence points below people in the general population. Whenever I give interviews to the press, I have to go through this long list of do-dos and do-nots, which includes the confusion between psychopathy and psychosis. Psychosis, of course, is a disorder of uh, a lack of contact with reality, such as schizophrenia completely unrelated to psychopathic disorder. So psych psychopaths are not psychotic. And some of the older literature, like Hervey Kleckley's The Mask of Sanity, actually says, well, psychopathy is a defense against madness. It's the thing that stops people with psychopathic disorder from coming across as absolutely insane. So it's a way, in the old psychodynamic thinking, of actually defending against madness. And finally, not all psychopaths are violent or even necessarily criminals. I've met a couple of people who are pretty charming, all right people. I wouldn't perhaps want to have dinner with them repeatedly, but that's only because their conversation's a bit repetitive. It's nothing to do with their psychopathy making them terrible people. It's definitely very possible for a, a person with a psychopathic disorder not to be a criminal, not to be violent. And we'll come back to that, I'm sure. So what is a psychopath? So a psychopath, I think, is somebody with a deficit. It's somebody with a void where there should be a part of their personality. They lack anxiety. Without anxiety to tell you about threat, about interest, about socially difficult situations, you lose a major marker of how you're supposed to behave, how you're supposed to respond to people in the world around you. And that's associated with a poor ability to mentalize emotions. That's the ability to identify emotions in other people and actually in yourself as well. Psychopaths are very, very, very bad at truly understanding emotions. I say truly because actually, paradoxically, they're excellent at something that we call pseudo-mentalization. A psychopath can always make a really good guess at what other people are thinking based on their experiences. But there's absolutely, it's just a guess. Um, even if you test uh, a psychopath in their 40s or 50s, using a pattern emotional pattern recognition test, they still can't do it with any degree of reliability. They, they're always guessing. Another feature is a lack of an internal risk assessment. Psychopaths are very poor at making judgments about risk. They will continue to make bad decisions, even when it's been proven to them again and again and again that the, the, the behavior that they're exhibiting has a negative outcome. I first learned this the hard way when I'd been working in the prison for about a month and I was given somebody's rap sheet to go through as part of their assessment. This guy had like 250 convictions for everything except the final one, which was murder, which got him locked up for life. But it's, this list just went on and on and on. It's like, well, after the fifth burglary, didn't you learn that you were pretty bad at this? So they can't use information to make better choices. They can't learn from experience. Psychopaths use other people as a means, not an end. When they establish relationships, be those social or intimate, they're not looking to bring that other person into their life. They're looking to use them as a stepping stone to um, some other form of self-fulfillment. It's what we call instrumental use of other people. You are never there to be fulfilled yourself. You're simply there to help the psychopath fulfill themselves if you're in a relationship with them. And that doesn't matter whether you're a partner or a psychologist or, or a social worker, probation officer, anything else. You're there essentially to be used. So the term psychopathy itself comes from people or clinicians who over the years have noticed some of their patients have this very strange disorder. Now, Pinel first identified this in the 19th century. He was treating people with mental illness in France, and he noticed that 
while he did have people who were psychotic, people who had intellectual disabilities, there were some people who mostly seemed okay, but they seemed unable to make good decisions about their lives. They just repeatedly made terrible decisions about how they corresponded with other people, who they took as a partner, how they dealt with loss, how they dealt with uh, aggression, how they dealt with challenges. And he called this maladie sans délire, uh, I suppose madness without delirium, but it was translated in the UK as moral insanity. People without a moral core to guide them. And that was the first recognised use of a term that was suggestive of psychopathy. This developed into psychopastiche, constitutional psychopaths, so people who were just constitutionally predisposed to manipulative or aggressive behaviour. And then in 1941, Herb Kleckley, who was a psychoanalyst working in the state, called psychopathy the mask of sanity, something that made them look superficially like other people, but underlying that mask was a sort of raging moral insanity, and in the fundamental inability to behave like other people, to treat other people fairly, to see any value in other people, and to have any empathy with other people. As he saw it, a real form of insanity, not like we see psychopathic disorder today. And finally, 1954, this turned into uh, psychopathic disorder, which was a category of the Mental Health Act on the associated term psychopathology. Okay, the next question is, how do we identify a psychopath? You tell them a story. While at the funeral of her own mother, a woman meets a guy who she doesn't know. She thought this guy was amazing, so much her dream guy she believed him to be that she fell in love with him there and then. A few days later, she kills her own sister. Why does she kill her sister? Now, if you know the answer to this, Question, congratulations, you're a psychopath. <laughs> any, any guesses? Nope, it's not her sister's husband or boyfriend. Why does she kill, oh, people in Exeter, you're so lovely, or oh, maybe not, hello. Yes, that is congrats, congratulations, you are a psychopath. The answer is because she wants to see the guy again. What better way to see him again? Have another funeral, yeah? He'll definitely come to that if he came on for, for uh, her mother. So she kills the, her sister to see the guy again. You know, there's something interesting in this about the, the moral value of life to a psychopath. It's not the same as it is to you or I. The problem with this one question test is that once you've heard the answer once, um, it's kind of ruined. So unfortunately, we have to tolerate the psychopath test. The, the psychopathy checklist revised, which was developed by a forensic psychologist called Robert Hare in the 19, actually it was developed in the 1970s as the original psychopathy checklist. But the one that's used legally in the States is the Psychopathy Checklist Revised, which is from 1998. So it was derived from Robert Hare's work with psychopaths in Canada. And he found that he was working with a lot of offenders who he found were particularly good at manipulating other psychiatrists, psychologists into situations where they felt morally compromised, into getting things from the prison staff they shouldn't have. So he developed a checklist of features that he thought allowed psychopaths to behave in this way with impunity, and he called it the psychopathy checklist. And it's very cleverly described and satirised uh, by John Rodson in his book, The Psychopath Test. Has anybody read that book? Strongly recommend Yep, good. It strongly recommend it. It's become so entrenched in uh, forensic psychology and psychiatry practice that now it's used for some pretty extreme things. For example, in some states in the United States of America, being a psychopath will save you from the death penalty because it's classified as a mental disorder. But conversely, in other states, it will send you to the chair because there's no treatment for it. So the competence of somebody to ability, somebody's ability to administer the psychopathy checklist is a hugely important legal issue in the state. So the training 
is absolutely mandatory. It has to be an approved training with Bob Hare or one of his very small cadre of delegated psychologists. Um, and in the UK, only, again, Bob or Reed Malloy or a very small number of uh, prison service forensic psychologists can train you to administer this checklist. And it takes a very long time to do. Basically, to build a picture of somebody's interpersonal, effective, impulsive, and antisocial traits. Four facets or four aspects that make up psychopathy. Now, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make a point here that the psychopathy checklist is a way of looking at psychopathy. It's the way that you have to use if you're a forensic psychologist or a psychiatrist, because no other way is respected, but I don't think it's the only way. And hopefully you'll see as I go through this, there are some things missing. So why is it so important the checklist is done with collateral, by reviewing files, by speaking to the owner and speaking to people who know them? Well, of course, that's because trait number one is that psychopaths are pathological liars. This has very interesting connotations for research into psychopathy. Newspapers love papers about psychopathy where a researcher creates a self-report psychopathy checklist and gives it to a bunch of people and says, Tell me about what it's like to be a psychopath. Tell me how you form relationships. Tell me how aggressive you are. Tell me how narcissistic you are. Tell me if you're one of the dark triad people, the really nasty ones. Go on, do it. And of course, if you're actually a psychopath, what will you do on the questionnaire? You'll lie, yeah? Socially desirable responding. You'll egg it up or you'll egg it down depending on how you're feeling on the day. You can't get a psychopath to fill in a question and sure enough the more mature considered research on psychopathy says that okay it's possible that filling in a psychopathy self-report questionnaire tells us something but it doesn't tell us the same thing as doing a PCLR on some. So pathological lying, glib and superficial charm, a grandiose sense of self-worth so a feeling of uh, entitlement, a sense that you're better than other people um, one of the earliest men that I worked with in the hospital, um, I walked onto the ward and uh, there was a guy dressed in a, a charcoal suit with a very, um, very 80s tie and unfortunately this is the uniform of most forensic psychiatrists. So I went up to him and said, oh, you know, I'm Mark, I'm a new researcher. He said, oh, lovely to meet you, Mark, fantastic. I, oh, so you must be the sociologist then, oh, all of this treatment. You know, you'll understand what nonsense it is. We run a very different ship here. And then a nurse appeared on my right and said, come on, Tony, enough of that. You're not supposed to be wearing that suit after the CPA. Get it off, get changed, get showered, and get back on the wall. And of course, Tony was a psychopath, a very, very high-scoring one. Conning and manipulative, which Tony was another great example of because he had a fantastic history of, of fraudulent offending, selling large implausible structures like Blenheim Palace to gullible idiots with too much money. Okay, so those are, those are interpersonal aspects. They basically describe the way that a psychopath relates to someone else. At the same time, psychopaths have uh, what we call a set of affective characteristics which relate to their emotional processing, how they deal with emotions. For a start, they seem to lack remorse or guilt for their actions. I think this is related to the way that psychopaths don't learn from experience. They don't necessarily learn that people are worth treasuring, that it's worth having relationships with other people. So if they damage people as a result of their offending or their manipulative behaviour or their conning, they don't feel any remorse for it at all. A shallow emotional response. So that's not to be confused with a flat emotional response like you get in somebody with chronic schizophrenia or maybe an autistic spectrum disorder. It's, it's highly expressive but short-lived. 
callous lack of empathy. So this, this is again refers to how psychopaths see other people, that they don't have empathy with their positions, that they can't show pity, compassion, or really any interest in understanding their emotions or their situation, and a failure to accept responsibility or blaming others for your problems. It's always someone else's fault with a psychopath. But there's a big difference between behaving in an antisocial or difficult way and actually fundamentally believing that you are better than them and they are there to be used. A big difference. So although the terms get used interchangeably, psychopaths and sociopaths are very different in the way they come across and also very different in the way that they're treated and how confident we are they might recover over time. For example, if we think about um, the prognosis for a sociopath or someone with antisocial personality disorder, the research, the research shows that when you reach the age of about 40, your antisocial tendencies tend to burn out a bit. But these facets, the primary psychopathic traits, they hang around. They don't respond to treatment. They don't burn out in the same way the antisocial traits do. You can test a 60-year-old psychopath and they'll still have this grandiose sense of self-worth, still be glib and superficial. Okay. So there's also two other items actually related to sexualized behavior, promiscuous sexual behavior and many short-term marital-like relationships. So psychopaths aren't necessarily um, predisposed to sleeping around. What they'll do is attach themselves to someone for a period of time until that relationship reaches a sort of natural end, i.e. when they get kicked out or told they're a terrible person or get, get bored and then move on to the next person and have another sort of serial monogamous relationship with them like that. Often related to the parasitic attitude, so they'll be very dependent on someone for a while and then move on as soon as that becomes difficult or breaks down. Not all psychopaths are sociopaths. There is an overlap and a criminal psychopath will be both, but it is possible just to have these two core features of psychopathy, yeah, interpersonal and effective. But what that also means is that you won't score above the threshold of the PCLR. So you wouldn't be eligible for treatment if you were a very, very glib, shallow, superficial, manipulative, lying chief executive officer, you'd probably be rewarded for what you did, which would make you what we call a successful psychopath. What makes a psychopath successful as opposed to unsuccessful? Well, a successful psychopath, we think, hasn't been caught. But the problem is that the psychopathy checklist isn't the only gig in town. There are other ways of thinking about psychopathy. And one of these particular controversies, first of all, about whether any psychological construct is really valid if it has such an emphasis on behavior. Right, so if all, all we're interested in about is, is what people do, how is that explanatory? Well, psychopaths are bad because they commit crime. Why do they commit crime? Because they're psychopaths. That doesn't really go anywhere, does it? So it, these sort of circular arguments about behavior don't really help us to think about what really drives the behavior in the psychopath. The other debate is about anxiety. Psychopaths do display lower levels of anxiety than other people, people in the general population, people with other personality disorders, but anxiety is not a feature of the psychopathy checklist, right? It's an a related but unincorporated construct. So different models, including disinhibition, meanness, boldness, which is what we call the triarchic model, have been tested and shown to have some validity, but they don't have quite the same validity, sorry, reliability, i.e. they don't get used in such a consistent and reliable inter-rater and repeat reliable way as the PCLR. So they don't get the uptake that perhaps they should do because fundamentally this is a better psychological construct. These are all psychological facets of someone's personality. There's no behavior in here. For a psychologist this should look better. 
But unfortunately, because it doesn't predict offending, uh, doesn't predict reconviction to such a high level of accuracy, um, it's not used as widely as the PCLR. Hmm. This leads to an interesting question of whether, where do psychopaths come from? Are they born? Are they made? Is it some link between the two? Some of the best evidence that we have about this is related to something called callous unemotional traits. So these are traits that children display before the age of 12. And it involves being cruel to animals, taking things from other people, bullying other kids, not showing any ability to really understand um, emotional responses in other children. And these have been posited by Essie Viding and others at UCL to be a phenotypical expression of a particular uh, genetic profile. And they've done some research that says, well, if you have antisocial behavior as a kid and callous unemotional traits, the majority of the variability in that from twin studies actually comes from uh, genetic influence. Whereas if you don't have these callous traits but just antisocial behavior as a kid, then most of the influence on that is environmental. So it seems like to a degree, psychopaths are born, whereas sociopaths are made, to put it simply. And there's a high degree of heritability of these traits between generations. How does that make people psychopaths? Well, we think it's to do with the development of two main systems in the brain. One is the amygdala. The amygdala is at the top of the brainstem right here, which means it's essentially part of the limbic system. The limbic system controls how you move, your sort of basic motor skills, and it's one of the first areas of the brain to develop. Interestingly, it's quite involved in, in your ability to lie as well. The amygdala itself is mainly concerned with emotion processing. And in a psychopath, it shows considerably lower volume and activation than it does in a non-psychopath. And because the amygdala controls emotion processing and fear acquisition, it probably suggests that somebody with lower amygdala volume, like a psychopath, is unable to process reward and punishment in the same way that somebody else is. Psychopaths are pretty good at understanding reward. If you reward them for a behavior, they'll learn from that, but very, very poor at punishment. And one of the frustrations, I suppose, of working with the prison system is that often the response to the prison system is to punish bad behavior, to adjudicate, to restrict people to cells, to segregate them. And it just doesn't, it's washed off a duck's back. Often these psychopaths will have multiple adverse childhood events. They'll have been abused or neglected. If you abuse and neglect them some more, so what? Who cares? They don't learn anything more than they already have about the world around them. So general volume reduction in the amygdala and some specific structural deficits that differentiate, interestingly, successful and unsuccessful <coughs> psychopaths. So the basolateral and superficial nuclei at the side of the amygdala have considerably more volume and more activation in successful psychopaths than they do in unsuccessful psychopaths. And this inability to learn from punishment seems to be far more associated with unsuccessful psychopathy, i.e. being caught. And also reduced stress and anxiety. Criminal psychopaths um, show an even flatter stress and anxiety reaction than successful psychopaths do. And again, as well as volume, there's a, a degree of hypoactivity in the psychopath's amygdala. This is um, a, a brain scan of Professor Jim Fallon, and he was doing a study on psychopaths, and as part of the control, scanned his own brain. This, this, this picture came out, and he's like, oh my god, this guy's a total psychopath. What are we going to do? We've got to notify his doctor. And he was like, oh, that's me. <laughs> so Jim was a psychopath, and he, he sort of took it pretty well, considering. You know, well, it's strange. I, I always thought when I sat down at a dinner party and I listened to the conversation, I just thought, I don't give a about these people. <laughs> and now I know why. 
<laughs> There's a fantastic YouTube video of him with his kids and their kids are going, well, we weren't really that surprised when dad came out as a psychopath. Anyway, uh, so in Jim's brain, you can see his amygdala activation is virtually, virtually doesn't even register on the fMRI scanner compared to a healthy control. The other part of the, the brain that we think is implicated in psychopathy is the prefrontal cortex, which is mainly about moral decisioning and processing reward. So if you show somebody a picture or if you play, this is the, oh, it's terrible stimulus, as I very well know, an audio tape of a baby crying, and most people there, prefrontal cortex will light up like a Christmas tree as they basically go, no, please make it stop. In a psychopath, it doesn't really have the same effect. There's some activation, but it's more diffuse and less obvious. Something that I've found really useful recently is to uh, think about a sort of more psychodynamic understanding of psychopathy. So less about the sort of neurobiology, more about the sort of interpersonal uh, and emotional deficits of psychopathy. I suppose that what I don't like is this deterministic theory of psychopathy. That psychopathy explains crime or it explains serial killers. It doesn't. Yep, there's lots of psychopaths who aren't serial killers. Uh, there's lots of serial killers who aren't psychopaths. There, isn't, there is a link, sure, but I think that's to do with a lack of inhibition and a lack of an ability to learn from experience rather than uh, a sort of motivation, if, if, you, think, if, you, if you follow me. So a, a psychoanalytic understanding of a psychopath is perhaps somebody who has a very distant or a very narcissistic mother figure who never really expresses emotion properly towards them or never allows them to feel validated in their own emotions. Often they'll have a very uh, high achieving or a very abusive father and this leads to something called identification with the aggressor. It's better to be the person, the abuser in the driving seat than it is to be the person getting kicked and punched and hurt every night. So their brain naturally tries to link them to the, the, the abusive figure instead of the victim. There's this idea that why are they made worse by treatment from the penetanguishine experiment, the LSD psychotherapy. And we think this is something to do with what the psychoanalysts call malignant pseudo-identification. So they're able to, I suppose, see emotion in other people. They see some sort of response, but they don't understand it. So they make a best guess. They pseudo-identify. And this idea that they try to recreate the insanity that they have in their childhoods, that in a very disordered, chaotic, abusive childhood, uh, they will try to create a world that uh, is reconstructed in that way through boundary violations. Okay, great. All right, so Villanelle. Essentially, my job as a consulting psychologist was to try and provide a figure that was accurate yet compelling. I mean, when I got the f phone call, they were like, oh, we want her to be a... Um, a glamorous psychopathic female assassin. And I was like, there's no such thing. I've worked with assassins. No way, we're talking like the most misogynistic group of men in the world. It's not gonna happen. Women aren't even particularly serial killers. There are a few examples, sure. When the government set up the DSPD service, they created 2,000 beds for male psychopaths. How many for women? Any guesses? 40 beds, of which only 14 were ever actually filled. So a kind of, was guessing with a lot of this stuff, but you know, informed guessing, I suppose. So Villanelle is a disorganized or a borderline psychopath with some primary features. She has a very, very disordered upbringing. It's really awful. Her father is abusive. Her mother is completely absent and there's no love or affection. So her primary motivation for me is trying to reimpose that order, that affectionless controlling world on everything around her. She's completely desensitized to violence, whether she's the perpetrator, the victim, or, or a witness to it. She's deeply narcissistic, so she very easily suffers from what we call narcissistic wounding, where if you experience a setback 
or somebody challenges you or threatens you, that is a pretty fundamental challenge to your conception of yourself and you respond to it in a very extreme, uncontrolled emotional way. Violence in this case. She's very interpersonally clumsy in the first, uh, I think the first scene of, of the first episode of Killing Eve. She's in a, a cafe with a little girl and the little girl um, is eating ice cream and Villanelle sees her and smiles at her and the little girl thinks, not unreasonably, you're weird, that isn't a proper smile, doesn't smile back. Then the guy behind the counter smiles at the little girl and the little girl smiles back beautifully because she sees warmth and human emotion which she somehow smells that Villanelle lacks. So Villanelle just upends the ice cream into the little girl's lap and walks out. So relational violence, misdirectional manipulation. And then trying to make her compelling because I think a, a true psychopath isn't a very compelling character. They get um, very dull very quickly. They don't really have a particular motivation. You have to write that around the psychopathic character almost. So this idea on identifying with the aggressor, transferring her emotional investment into people around her, such as Constantine, um, Eve, of course. There's a wonderful description of this in one of the newspaper reviews where it says that Villanelle and Eve both have things that they sense they lack. So they, look, they seek to find that thing in the other, which I really like as a description of it. So this scene, if you might have seen it before, but this is... Um, a scene where Villanelle has been um, conducting hit uh, assassinations and she's called in by her employers to visit a psychiatrist. So a few things to pick up on here. First of all, the dress. The dress is fantastic. When I saw this, I was like, thank God, this is actually going to be really good. So the dress is actually based on a patient who wasn't a psychopath but did have a very severe personality disorder I used to work with who would just wear the most bizarre clothes to every single session, like massive sweaters. She would sort of swim in and the bits of the sweater would be dragging on the floor. Again, another, another guy who I worked with used to do is to overdress to sort of get a particular reaction out of people. Why would an assassin be wearing a pink coloured tutu? So it immediately puts you on the back foot. And that's the psychopath trying to control the situation very carefully. Another thing is this malignant pseudo-identification. So the, the psych psychiatrist is there to help He's trying to understand if she's upset or decompensating or unable to do her job anymore. So he shows the picture of the, the, the dog to try and wrong foot her. But Villanelle sees this coming and she pretends, she affects what looks like a really genuine emotional reaction. And everyone's like, oh my God, she's cracked. <laughs> she's not a psychopath anymore. We've got to fire her. And then just laughs it off because she's played the psychiatrist into thinking that he's in control of the situation when he's really not at all. And also the way that Jodie Comer, who is absolutely fantastic in every aspect of this role, sort of drops in these sort of really disturbing details about her killings, like really kind of like prosaic descriptions of hor almost sadistic descriptions of horrible things that she's done. All hilariously good fun to her. Really, really well um, acted out. Okay, so I've got to wrap up. Sorry about that. My final point is that psychopaths are mentally disordered. They are people who are unwell. They have a deficit. And we treat them really, really poorly. In psychiatry and psychology specifically, we're so interested in trying to get into their brains, understand what makes them tick. We don't actually have any effective treatments at all. DSPD, interestingly, was pretty much a complete failure. It was closed down in 2011 and now it's restricted just to two prisons, including the one where I used to work. I think that what we did very well was manage psychopaths rather than actually treat them or give them any good prognosis for the future. And James Blair, who's the, um, I suppose, the, the, the best known psychopathy researcher in the United States, says, look, 
People with this disorder, this disorder deserve to be helped and we fail them. We don't have anything to offer them and we're not trying hard enough ourselves either. If you're more interested about this, I've got to do this plug, sorry, it feels really weird to do it, but I've actually written a book that's coming out in July through Penguin called Making a Psychopath and it's just a description of my time in um, the hospitals and the prisons. Uh, so you might be interested in that, you might, I, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm no good at selling books, it's not what I do. So thank you so much for listening and I would love to hear any questions you might have. Thank you. Is it, is it true that there are fewer, much fewer female psychopaths or are they just more successful? <laughs> that is a really good question. Um, I think that the problem is, uh, and I was rumbled on this in an interview I did in the, the Telegraph a couple of years ago, that just everything we know about psychopaths is known about male psychopaths. And there are, we think there are so few female psychopaths, so we go, oh, there's no female psychopaths, let's not even bother trying to research them. Um, and the few that I have met or worked with are not particularly keen on being worked with anyway, so it's sort of a moot question. It does exist. There's the case of... Um, Angela Simpson, who was a, a murderer in the United States, who Villanelle was apparently partly based off. I can't see it because while she is very remorseless and callous, she's pretty much about as charming as a blood-covered cheese grater. So um, Caroline Logan, who's a, a reader in forensic psychology at the University of Manchester, has a pretty good hypothesis around this sort of uh, um, the femme fatale character. So this is a psychopath who works at a degree of removal from what they're trying to do. So they use sort of uh, secondary uh, figures, maybe um, ex-lovers or, or people who are somehow attracted to their psychopathic personality to do the dirty work for them. And she's got some really good examples from uh, offences in the past or literary figures who've been based on this kind of archetype. So it may be that if we change the way that we assess psycho psychopathy slightly more in women, we'd find more female psychopaths. But at the moment, again, the perception is they don't exist, so we don't do research on them. So right from the get-go, you're trained not to associate psychopathy with, with women, which may not be entirely true. Um, what's the youngest you can identify as a psychopath? I think ethically, you shouldn't be really diagnosing a personality disorder of any type in anyone under 25 because I think your personality is still coming together and often what we think of as maybe manipulative or conning behaviour is just sort of adolescent bravado, particularly in young men. Um, so I'm not particularly comfortable with it being used with anyone under 25 but in the States it's essentially if you're over 18 it's fair game. If they are like have no anxiety and they're not really, they're quite supervision and stuff then how can you treat them if they maybe don't want to be treated? Well this is the, this is the rub isn't it? So um, two things that I think are very promising. One is that part of the DSPD programme was something called the Chromis Initiative. So this was an attempt to sort of find a way of motivationally engaging psychopaths. We know that they don't respond to punishment but do they respond to incentivization? So essentially you, you start off and premise all the treatment on the idea that we want to, you to be able to do what you want to do. Yep, so we go through a lot of motivational interviews, questionnaires about what it is you want from life, what you want to get out of it, um, and we sort of lower the threshold for adjudication. So if there's a, a disagreement or an argument or even a fight, we say, okay, guys, let's sit down and talk about it. Let's try and work through what happened, deconstruct it, and learn from the uh, exercise, even if 
at a quite superficial way rather than sort of expecting people to take responsibility. We just say, well, you know, how did it start and how could we prevent this happening in the future? The problem is that often the men had pretty unrealistic expectations about what we could do. So it was like, well, can you take time off my sentence then? Uh, no. So it, it's, it's a tricky line and it worked with some people um, and not with others and it tended to work better with people who weren't heavily institutionalised irrespective of how psychopathic they were. But some of the men who'd already been in prison on life sentences for years, it just, I mean, they didn't really know, I think what they, they didn't know what it was they would want if they were released. So it's very, very difficult to think about what, you know, you could go out in the community and smell the fresh air and, you know, have a relationship again. Okay, well, I never had those things anyway, so I don't understand what it is you're offering me. And the other thing is this, this idea of mentalization-based therapy, so therapy that works on an understanding of emotion um, and trying to sort of move away from a, a kind of pseudo-mentalizing way of thinking about how other people think and feel and challenging it and encouraging people to work with each other. There are, there's a trial going on at the moment, but I have at least one former patient who's now a mentalization trainer and he's very, very good at it. And it seems to have had a really good effect on him as well. Like he just seems more interested in how other people think and feel. I don't think he's quite got it yet. I don't think he still gets very, very angry with people who cut in front of him in a queue or woe betide them. <laughs> or um, what's the particular thing he has? Or anyone who touches a tap that he then has to use, you know, whoa, don't do that. Because um, he'll get very, very frustrated and cross. But he seems to be able to sort of walk, talk the talk and kind of walk the walk as well. So mentalization-based therapy is being trialed right now. It's promising, it might be helpful, and it seems to sort of have some degree of, I guess the problem is psychopaths walk away from so much because they don't see how it benefits from them. So anything where they come back with any degree of frequency, we kind of latch onto. So mentalization-based therapy might be promising in the future as well. It's not terribly hopeful, is it? But it's a bit of hope. Um, I, so, <laughs> I, I'm not sure because I've never seen it done really well, but there was a, my, my constant battle with the writers in Killing Eve seemed to be to try and say, look, psychopaths just, they don't have hearts of gold. They're not going to suddenly, Villanelle's not going to suddenly turn around one day and explain that she's in love with Eve and, you know, they should have, raise a family together. So it just, it's not, it, that's what's missing, right? That understanding of how relationships should play out. So there was a lot of sort of um, trying to kind of see well, or trying to introduce ideas that soften Villanelle's character a bit just to make her more compelling. And it's, a, it's, a, it's fair enough, you know, because like I said, I, I think a true psychopath is not a very interesting character. It's not somebody you go back to watch again and again because it's what they're missing that defines them. So you've got to be very careful with what you bring in. But to qualify that a bit, you know, everybody has a, a character, everybody has a personality that's built up over time. Even in a psychopath where it's missing a few bits and bobs, they still will have had relationships and those relationships still will have had an impact on them. They'll still have desires. Those desires might be pretty warped and strange to the rest of us, but they're still there. Yeah, I suppose that goes back to the idea of what motivates you in life. You know, it may be warped and strange, but perhaps we can find some version of it that's okay. Uh, probably not assassinating people for a living, but hey, you know, you take what you can get. Well, you're more than welcome to come up at the end, but we're going to have to finish now. So any more questions, do come up and talk to Mark. But otherwise, thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. It's really nice to be here. It's really nice to meet you.